we will fundamentally change in, in our exuberance and our animal spirits. And I don't think we'll get back to exactly the way we were before. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Rich Picking CIO Update, but this time with a CEO. I've just had a fascinating conversation with Anne Richards, the Chief Executive of Fidelity International. As always on this podcast, we go over current market movements, but it's what she thinks about the second and third order effects of the coronavirus crisis that really resonate. The reinvention of capitalism, no less. The shifting shapes of supply chains. And why ESG could be a winner once we're on the other side. Here's Anne. Anne Richards, welcome. Thank you. And and hello to you too, Richard. Thank you. Now, before we get going, what's the best thing that you've bought specifically for the lockdown? Oh, well, it's um, it's actually my chair. I've never really worked from home. So when we first started working from home, I was sitting on a kitchen chair with lots of cushions and it really wasn't very comfortable. So one of my sons kindly offered to lend me the chair he uses for his uh, gaming, for his Xbox. Is it special? I, I liked it so much. I bought my own <laughs> and uh, it's super comfortable, far more comfortable than any office chair I've ever sat in. Uh, this is not a plug for any particular brand, by the way, but may I just recommend it? Great lumbar support, great Great uh, arm sport, great neck sport. Looks Fantastic. like you could be driving a Formula One car. Um, let, let's move on now there to, um, to markets, a quick look at those, because we've been recording these podcasts since the COVID-19 crisis became a global issue well over two months ago. Markets crashed, they rose again, and they seem completely divorced from what's going on in the real world. This isn't right, is it? That's a very leading question. Who's to say in this world what's right and what's not right? Um, I think it's probably a surprise. If you'd asked in advance, when you looked at the scale of the economic hit that the widespread global lockdown has had, you wouldn't necessarily have guessed that the way in which equity markets and indeed bond markets have held up would be where they are today. So I think ex ante, it's definitely not what you would have predicted. There are some reasons why actually markets have bounced quite substantially off those lows that they saw uh, during March. And a lot of that is to do with the central bank activity. First of all, with the degree of liquidity, which was just thrown into the system to make sure things didn't ground to a halt in businesses. And then secondly, very hot on the heels of that has been the fiscal response, the way that governments have acted to put support in place to help businesses through the disruption that we're seeing because everybody in many parts of the world, you know, frankly, can't get out of their houses, can't go out and do the normal things that they would do to keep those wheels of commerce going. So I think those two things have, have really fed through into markets. The, the, the sums involved, is that now, it's so large that it's become a permanent fixture, do you think? And, and if, if that is the case, then what impact does that have? Well, it's certainly going to be a fixture of our economic landscape for a very long time to come, just because the scale of that activity, which has in a way dwarfed the level of response that we saw immediately post the financial crisis 2008-2009, because it's been more global and more coordinated around the world. So I, th I think the scale of it means that nobody has any crystal ball into how it's likely to be unwind. So I think we're going to have to live with this new reality. And what you're beginning to see open up in the debate around about this, is this massive amount of increased indebtedness, is this going to be inflationary? It actually provokes inflation to come back into the system, something we've not really seen over the last 10, 12 years. Or is it deflationary? Is it going to keep 
economic activity actually depressed because it's going to depress investment into the real economy as people come and pay it back and uh, try and pay it back. And I think that balance between what is the likely shape of the path between those two extremes is is very unclear at this at this stage. We are at the beginning of exploring this new economic reality. And and both of those outcomes, whichever one it turns out to be, have profound impacts for investors. And yet, as you say, it's not clear at this moment um, which one it's going to be. How should an investor position themselves ready for either of these to become true? Well, it, it's it's always a challenge. We never have a crystal ball. We're always looking at different spreads of possible outcomes and when people talk about uncertainty, they talk about uncertainty all the time. I've never lived in my investment career at any moment when there hasn't been uncertainty. So we shouldn't ever kid ourselves that uncertainty goes away. But it does seem we are in a completely new paradigm at this point. So what can you do to, if not insulate yourself, at least expand your possible range of different outcomes that maybe help you mitigate downside risk and, and increase your possibility of a good return? And the, one, the techniques are... Pretty simple in that. First of all, diversification really matters in this environment. Um, who can predict really what sectors, who can predict what parts of the world are going to emerge better than others? We can have ideas, we can have scenarios, but all scenarios in this environment have some degree of possibility around about them. So diversification geographically and by sector is important. I think time horizon matters a lot in this respect. Clearly, the shape of your portfolio, what you might want to do as an investor is very different if you have a very direct need for capital or need for income over the next 12 months versus whether you're saving for a, a, a pension that you might not draw down for another 30 or 40 years. So certainly in the latter case, you can afford to take a lot more risk. You can probably afford to have a lot more equity exposure than you can if you've got a much more immediate and short-term need. And so I think that the starting point for thinking about what you can do as an investor is completely dominated by what your own immediate needs are. And then as, as investors, what we try and do is we try and shape and tilt what we suggest to people based on those different needs. So some profound questions then about um, investing and how to um, operate within uh, the system that we're in at the moment, but actually some fundamental questions as well about that system, because you've been warning for some time in articles and in speeches that capitalism needs to reinvent itself. Some people think that capitalism is um, running on borrowed time. What in the current context, where in, in the middle of a crisis, what does that mean now? I don't think I would say that capitalism has been running on borrowed time, but I think it is time for capitalism to look at itself and go through one of its periodic reinventions. Capitalism has always done that through the decades, through the centuries. As the, the environment around about it, society around about it changes, capitalism has been very good at adapting to that. And we are going through one of those periods of adaptations. So if you want to be positive about some of the things that potentially are being um, thrown up through this crisis, we are seeing things like ESG factors really play into the force. So we've done some research that shows, and it's a short-term time period, but the companies that we um, rated most highly on ESG criteria, so the environment, on their social responsibilities and on their governance, those companies which we rated in our proprietary system most highly performed better through that very steep market decline that we saw. And so that tells you that it is really worth focusing effort on the companies that are better managed and better managed for a broader purpose than those that are focused for a very narrow set of interests. That's quite 
profound. So I think that's that's one thing that will change. But I think there are other broader things as well. We've seen that whole industries are coming under challenge at the moment. Airlines, now we, we're, we're, we're clearly going to go back to more frequent air travel again, but will it look and feel the same to the way our, the industry was developing prior to this crisis? Perhaps not. And perhaps that's a, a, an industry which might go through its own revolution in a way. And as investors, we need to think about what that means and how we can both support the revolution and, and perhaps encourage companies to change in a way which means air pollution, uh, climate change is part of the solution. It's not just seen as another burden or another problem, um, you know, as we all try and adapt to this new world. So if the world is quite different, are these questions that all companies will have to consider, not just the best performing ESG management? I think that companies are clearly looking much more closely, not just about how they um, manage their businesses for efficiency. They're also thinking about how they manage their businesses for resiliency. And that's resiliency against all sorts of different aspects. So it could be the longer term impact of climate change at one extreme. But in the much narrower and the much shorter um, timeframe, it could be how you make sure you have resilience in your, um, in your supply chain, because any supply chain is only as robust as its weakest link. And if international travel, if global supply chains are much more challenging to manage because we don't have the freedom of movement of goods and people in quite the way that we did, that means... Thinking as a as a management team on how you optimize that supply chain, not just for efficiency, but to make sure that you actually are able to operate regardless of that broader environment. That's a very different way of thinking to the way I think many management teams have been focused over the last few years. So, so starting to think about this much more multidimensional approach to operational efficiency, operational resilience, I think is one of the things that will absolutely come through. And that will cut across industries. There'll be no industry that is immune to that, including, by the way, financial services. Well, maybe we'll come to that in a minute, actually, because I want to ask you about your own company. But um, when you're talking about the supply chains and um, the way that companies until now have finely tuned their supply chains, they, they, they have got everything uh, coming just in time. They are um, uh, optimised for, for, for margins. Um, how easy is it going to be for individual companies and everything else that they touch to make the sort of changes that you're talking about? I think it's going to be easier for some industries than for others. That's for sure. I mean, if you're in a service-based industry and you've been able to pivot relatively rapidly um, because of um, technology, because of uh, the, the World Wide Web, I mean, if we, if we didn't have the web, we wouldn't be able to operate in the way that we have. And we have a huge, we should have a huge debt of gratitude because without that, I think our operational resilience would be dramatically smaller. Our economic resilience would be more dramatically impacted even than it's been already. So, but I think, I think no industry is immune to it. I think the point about transition is a really, is a really good one. And I think every sector is going to be a little bit different in how it adapts to it. So for the service sector, because of the invention of the, of the World Wide Web, because of the fact that we have businesses which were very largely um, digitally enabled and very largely um, online-based to, to, to a degree, it's meant pivoting to a world, a virtual world, a world where people are working from home has been dramatically easier. If you're in a manufacturing industry where you're still very much dependent on people and things, it's clearly going to be a harder pivot. 
But that doesn't mean that it can't happen. And out of crisis, out of necessity is sometimes when the most um, ingenuity comes forward. And I think we're starting to see this with some manufacturing lines that were able to pivot to making PPE, protective equipment, for example. I think that's that's been a really great example of how it is possible to pivot when you absolutely have to in a crisis. So there's a bit about all industries needing to learn from that. Clearly, if you are dependent on physical infrastructure, again, come back to the airline example, airports and airlines, there's going to be some dramatic changes to the overall economics of how that can all work together. And I think it's going to be very hard for that industry without a great deal of, if not government intervention, at least government support and strategic thinking about what the shape of that industry needs to look like once we through, come through the other side of that. I think it's quite hard for that very long supply chain to do that on its own. So every industry will be a little bit different and how easy it is to transition. But getting it right is quite important because when you look at the number of people furloughed, when you look at the number of people um, actually claiming unemployment benefits, whether in the US or you know, right around the world, it's clear that part of the recovery story has got to be getting people back to work. So governments around the world need to be working with industry, thinking through those transitions and thinking through both what are the early interventions to help industries reinvent themselves in this new world, but also longer term strategically, how can governments work together to think about what that global infrastructure and what that global supply chain needs to look like so we can make it more robust for everybody. Let me bring it a little bit closer to home then, because we both work in the service sector and financial services, and we're talking to each other from our homes. And you're right, we've been able to carry on um, almost without interruption. It's quite remarkable. In that case, are there any permanent changes that you can envisage at your own company as a result of this enforced experiment where for the past couple of months, um, 8,000 uh, members of staff in, in your company, almost all of them have been working from home. Yeah, it's extraordinary. We've got, uh, we've had more than 8,000 people in more than 20 countries around the world effectively running this business from home. And if you'd asked me in advance, could we do that? Um, I would not have been wanting to take that bet. It helped that um, we moved into this in a staged basis, moving into it, first of all, in some of our Asian offices um, and actually starting to see some of those come out of it early as well. And that helped us learn and adapt to what worked, what perhaps worked a little bit less well. So we had, we've had some able, ability to learn as we've, as we've gone into it on this somewhat gradualistic approach. I think when we look forward from here, I think we have far more conviction that the ability to be adaptive, to be more agile, to be more flexible in actually what constitutes both how you work in terms of flexibility around hours and where you work. Do you really need to be in an office? Now, we all know that face, real face-to-face -face time, not virtual face-to-face -face time matters. Nonverbal cues matters, collegiality, getting to know colleagues informally, all of that stuff matters. And we need to find ways of making sure we can continue to have those really important parts of the cultural conversation continue. But I think in the new world that we're in, a more distributed workforce with more flexibility about working from home is absolutely the way of the future. And I think that's probably a good thing. It will relieve pressure on infrastructure, on transportation, and actually on carbon emissions and some of the other things there as people 
frankly travel a little bit less to get into the office every day. So I think there are some, I think there will be a permanent change and there are some good things I think I hope will come out of this over time as well. But we're still in the stage of learning exactly how this all balances out. And if that's um, a change in the way that um, a company like yours um, operates, what about the way that companies operate in the world? Because um, moving beyond um, Fidelity, many more companies um, than ever seemed possible are needing help in order to survive. But there are calls now for conditions to be attached um, to that financial help for for corporates. Uh, What are the sorts of things that might need to be corrected? And how would you rate the chances of that bringing about change? I think the the initial response to the crisis was very much to help meet the liquidity needs that individual businesses had to get through what uh, I think a lot of people hope will be a V-shaped recovery. So help them with liquidity to smooth out the bottom of that V and then get the economy growing again as rapidly as it declined when the lockdowns kicked in. And I think that's the what the liquidity response was. Of course, the longer it goes on, the more that liquidity need will transform into what you might describe as a solvency need. Actually, it's not enough just to load companies up with debt. What you need to do is find ways of injecting a cap, new capital, fresh capital, fresh equity into those businesses so that they're not weighed down by that debt burden, so that they can invest in the real economy, so that they can invest to grow and help rebuild things as we come out of the of the downturn. Um, but I think the big question is it's hard to see that happening without some degree of government intervention or support, not necessarily to find all fund all of that um, recapitalization, but probably to support that recapitalization. And since society has borne quite a heavy burden, individuals have borne quite a heavy burden as we've gone into this, I think there is an expectation on the behalf of both society generally and, you know, and governments in many places as well, that with that equity recapitalization will be some responsibilities, will be some elements that we put on companies in terms of how they change and how they shape the future business environment to bring that resilience into place. So the sorts of conditions that might well be attached to it are, for example, how it looks after its lowest paid workers, who've often been the ones that have been, for example, outsourced and on whom the greatest degree of financial instability has been pushed, even though perhaps they're the least able to cope with that financial instability. So going back in time a little bit when companies perhaps took more individual responsibility for the workforces that they have, that would be one example of it. But there are others. There could there could be conditions attached to the way large companies deal with their supply chain. So perhaps uh, looking at both how quickly they pay their bills and how easily they extend credit to some of the smaller businesses that are part of the supply chain, effectively providing a working capital injection boost into those SME type of companies, which I think, again, would help them with their stability and their ability to take on new employees and therefore, again, galvanize the economy. So I think it's in those sorts of areas that I I see society, whether formally or informally, but just putting more onus on company executives to think more broadly about their broader range of stakeholders and not just purely in short-term financial or profit-led criteria. 
So if we come out of this with companies behaving in a better way, behaving more paternalistically towards their staff, behaving in a more responsible way to their suppliers, not sending people on planes all over the globe all the time, does it suggest that we've been chasing the wrong things up until now? That um, you know the, the the pursuit for uh, better productivity, of of greater economic growth, GDP as being the the primary measure. Um, if we've managed in the last couple of months to do with less than we did before. Does this mean that we might see a different set of targets for companies to aim for in future? I think most company management now are looking at a much broader range of targets than purely total shareholder return, for example. I think that at a very simple level, that will absolutely be true. I think that you used the word paternalistic in your question, and I think that's quite an interesting word. It's not one that I would have chosen because that sounds almost somewhat patronizing to it. And I don't think it is a bit about being patronizing. I think it is about recognizing the broader societal benefit of having people that have demonstrably been shown to be key workers, although they are amongst our lower paid workers, the, the valuable role that they bring to society at large, as well as to the individual businesses. So it's more about recognizing that not everything that is valuable can be accounted for in financial terms. That doesn't mean that it's not long-term very positive to an economy. So that, that is one point that I would make on that. I think your other point touches on something which is almost arguing about what drives the broader economy. We have been used to in developed markets to very consumption-led economies for really some considerable amount of time. And when you've got unemployment numbers, which are as elevated as it looks like we will have, and when you think about the psychological shock that many people who thought they were in very secure employment have suddenly found them, you know, they found that employment was not so secure um, because of, you know, for example, if they're in the travel or the leisure industry or the tourist industry, I think that will meaningfully change consumer behavior for quite a long time to come. So I think reorienting economies so that they are less reliant on consumption, we think more about the value of goods produced. Uh, I think that's going to be one of the changes. So I think we will probably rely on less, but we might be willing to pay more for those things on which we do rely in order to pay for, if you like, those supply chains which are optimised for resilience and not just lowest cost efficiency. To come to another point that you just raised then about the change in consumer behaviour, how long are you thinking now before we get back to normal? How long is this going to take to play out? Are we talking, uh, I mean, certainly it seems more than months, but are we talking years or decades? I think there are two different parts to your question. One part is how long before business has uh, internalized the virus and found ways of, of coping, whether the development of a vaccine, whether the development of more effective treatments or whether um, other things allow us to get back to a, a shape of business that we would all know and recognize as something that existed pre-COVID-19. Um, and I think your, your central scenario has got to be that we have probably another 12 months or so before there is widespread vaccine available or widespread um, treatment available, which mitigates the impact of it. So I think in terms of mindset, 12 months plus before we're anything close to what we would have perceived to be normality. I think in terms of the longer term impact, though, I think you should never underestimate the psychological scarring which will come through from having as much of the population furloughed, um, losing their jobs, 
um, as we've seen at the moment. You talk to any young person at university or just graduating from college at the moment um, and or who's just won their first job a year ago and has just lost it. That is uh, deeply psychologically scarring. We've seen from periods of high unemployment in the past, the effects of that, the echoes of that carry on for a long time into the future. We've also got to bear that in mind that for many young people who came through the financial crisis, so those who are perhaps in their early 30s, mid 30s at the moment, they had just begun to get back on their feet after the last financial crisis. And they're now in a second crisis. And I think that psychological scarring will affect a generation. So I think we will fundamentally change in, in our exuberance and our animal spirits. And I don't think we'll get back to exactly the way we were before. History tells you it takes a long time to recover from this level of shock. Um, thank you very much indeed. That's the end of this CEO update. You can hear more from Fidelity's investment team on the coronavirus crisis, market response and investment implications on both our Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast channels. Just search for Rich Pickings or Fidelity Answers in your podcast app. And you can read all of our latest thinking online at fidelityinstitutional.com. My colleagues Ben Mashinsky and Steve Gardner produced and edited this podcast with production support from Maddie Fletcher and Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.